Well, good morning, and this morning we continue our journey through the study of worship and Bible and the Bible and then the Reformed tradition. So in today's class, we'll talk specifically about reading the Bible when we gather together for corporate worship. So hence the name of the, the uh, title of the class, Reading Scripture in Corporate Worship, Part 1, The Biblical Tradition. Now you might think, of course we read the Bible in church. We don't need a class on reading the Bible in corporate worship. Well, you might be right, but have you thought about why we read the Bible every Lord's Day in corporate worship? Why do we have a call to worship that starts with the reading of scripture? Uh, if you look at your bulletins, when you get inside or if you have it on your phone, you'll see a scripture reading before the sermon. Right, where do these things uh, come from? Now, I'm assuming that you would assume uh, that the word is the center of our fellowship and our study when we gather together. Right, that's a given. But I want to give some sort of muscle to the reason why we do what we do. Not just here at FBC, but in many Reformed and Evangelical churches who are striving to be faithful to the word and faithful to scripture. Now, um, we want to sort of see, which we'll do throughout this class and others, but we want to sort of trace the biblical narrative, uh, the biblical tradition, and we want to look at the Reformed tradition concerning these different topics, and specifically here in Scripture reading. Now, although the reading of Scripture has been a practice and principle for a long time, um, probably if you go to eight out of ten churches here in Orlando, um, you might see a different approach to that. It might not see like, seem like it's the most uh, important thing. It might not seem like it's something that's relevant at all. Um, you know, I've gone to many churches in my life growing up and even in my um, adult life, or visited churches at least, and the fact that uh, the scripture is God's word and is supreme and ought to be uh, lifted up and revered and we ought to worship God through his word that's not something you actually see a lot of places. Um, not that our church is some exception, but it's something that is not as common maybe as it should be. And if we're honest, we probably have uh, a similar tendency, I've seen it in my own heart at times in different church settings, to see the scripture reading, specifically that part of scripture reading, um, at the beginning of the service, sort of like uh, the, the previews to the movie, right? So when you go to the movie, you get your tickets, and if you're gonna miss out on any part of it, it's gonna be the previews, right? You go to the restroom, you get popcorn, um, but you want to make sure that you're in your seat when the real thing starts, the movie or the sermon in church. But everything before that, and maybe some after that, it's you know something you can sort of you know, miss. It's more optional. But I want to sort of, um, I don't know, maybe move us away from that type of thinking and that tendency when it comes down to the corporate worship service, and specifically thinking about the area of scripture reading, the public reading of scripture. So hopefully in the next two classes, uh, we can maybe get a, a, a stronger grip, a better grasp um, maybe build into our minds and hearts a conviction about the service as a whole being uh, crucial and the scripture reading being a part of that, right? 
Now, in the New Testament, you see different examples of uh, reading the scriptures in corporate worship, the corporate gathering of Christians. You also see it in synagogue worship. In 1 Timothy 4.13, the Apostle Paul writes to a younger pastor and disciple named Timothy, and he says this, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The NASB says, give attention to. And the ESV and the the, uh, NIV say, devote yourself to. Now, you wonder, did Paul just sort of make that up on the spot? Paul knows that the word of God is crucial for God's people. Did he just come up with a good idea based on a good principle? Or did he get that idea of the public reading of scripture from somewhere? I want to argue that he got it from somewhere. It wasn't a new idea. So what we'll do is go back and then move forward as we think about this idea of the corporate or public reading of scripture. Okay. So first, and you'll see this on your, your handout, the public reading or, or the public scripture reading in the Old Testament. Now, the first place we see public reading of scripture in the Bible is at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. So the subtitle in your Bibles. So let me have you turn to Exodus 24 so we can look at it together. I won't read a ton of it, but you can just turn there. Exodus 24. Now, the subtitle in your Bible for that chapter might say something like the covenant confirmed or the covenant renewed, depending on your, your translation. Um, in Exodus 24, 7, it says, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now you see this practice in other places in the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy 31, God told the Israelites through Moses, to read his law at the end of every seven years. That section in your Bible probably is titled the reading of the law. See that in Deuteronomy 31, 10 to 12. So let me have someone go to Deuteronomy 31 and read verses 10 through 12, nice and loud so we all can hear you. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they might hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of his law. Okay, thank you. So, gather the people, read the law, remember the covenant. To put that more technically, God reminded the people of Israel of his and their covenant responsibility through the oral tradition of the reading of scripture. Now bookmark that idea in your mind. Through this practice of reading 
the identity of Israel as God's covenant people was created and renewed. And through this practice, these people who were once slaves in Egypt committed or recommitted or rededicated themselves to the service of the God who saved them. That's an important idea to keep in mind. Now let's look at Joshua 8. Joshua brings the people of God into Canaan. And what happens is this same practice, this practice that was crucial to the old covenant people of God, the reading of the book of the law. And look at the subtitle for that section in Joshua 8, the end of Joshua 8. Sort of the the translators uh, recognize a, a pattern here. That section is probably titled in your Bible, Joshua Renews the Covenant. Or at least it's, uh, that's, it's that in the ESV. There may be others. Let me have someone read Joshua chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Okay, thank you. So you see this again in Israel's history. During a time when Israel's king was rebelling, uh, his kings were rebelling against God, the book of the law was lost. But it wasn't lost like uh, misplaced. It was lost like put away put on a shelf out of sight out of mind but when God's word was found or rediscovered King Josiah one of Israel's more obedient kings brought a sort of national reform and this reform started with a public reading of scripture 2nd Kings 23 verse 1 and 2 say this then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So the same practice we see in Nehemiah 8, God brings his people back from exile, and Ezra and Nehemiah are leading the people. They establish and organize the camps of the people. Then there's something like an inaugural inaugural event. And what happens? They read from the book of the law. Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 1. You can turn there in your Bibles. We can maybe read it together. Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the high priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now I'm gonna jump down to verse seven. 
The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. They read from the law and they gave the sense. That uh, section there, that part in uh, verse eight, and they gave the sense, um, is another way of saying that they uh, explained, they exposited, they drew out what was in the text and explained it to the people. Um, it's the principle from which we get expository preaching. They gave the sense. But we'll talk about that more in a few weeks. But here, we're thinking about the public reading of Scripture. Now, this reading, in Nehemiah 8 at least, um, took place for, it was happening for hours. So from um, sunrise to midday, uh, which is about noon, uh, there was a special platform, a wooden platform there, which scholars recognize or see, saw uh, many see as the first pulpit in biblical history. Um, but they stood on this wooden platform and he read, the Levites read from the book of the law. In verse one, you notice that it says, the book of the law of Moses. Now the fact that the book of the law here is tied to Moses shows us that either part or all of the Pentateuch was read. Uh, Pentateuch is a, um, a, a way of saying the first five books of the Bible. Right, so imagine standing from sunrise to midday, noon, listening to the scriptures read. So not two or three, <laughs> but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if we visited a church that did that, you probably wouldn't go back. <laughs> but this is what took place. Nehemiah also says that the Levites gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. In other words, they explained what was read. Now, I preached a sermon on this back of um, April, May of 2019. You can listen to it when you get a chance. In preparing for that sermon, it was interesting to see the response of the people to the law being read. As I was reading commentaries on that passage, it was also interesting to see how the church, when interpreting that text, recognized patterns that should be seen as foundational even for our church services today, like the reading of scripture. So the reading of scripture, when I say that, um, I mean not just in connection to the sermon, but as a practice of reading broader passages on a regular basis to give the people a regular diet of the whole counsel of God is, is the idea there. And this is a practice uh, in a lot of Reformed and Protestant churches today. <clears throat> An Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading is what you often see. Some even read whole chapters from the Old and the New. All right, so they want to have a practice or a goal that says all of God's counsel for all of God's people on a regular basis. Congregations have been eased into this habit and sort of trained to drink larger doses of, of God's word. And again, we'll talk about that more uh, next week. But again, in Exodus 24 and Deuteronomy 31 uh, to Joshua 8 to Nehemiah 8, you see this practice of the reading of God's word. And it's actually associated, or it's usually rather associated with 
something of a covenant uh, confirmation or covenant remembrance. Now, I have this, you don't have this in your handout, but this next, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the idea of covenant renewal and distinctions. Um, And we'll talk about this a little more next week as well. But I wanted to say a little bit about the idea of covenant renewal before I, I move forward. Now, the language of covenant has a broad history in the church. And the language of covenant renewal or covenant confirmation has been interpreted and applied differently within different denominations. And not just those churches or congregations that sort of self-identify as covenantal. So some churches would formally consider their service as a covenant renewal. And their order of service reflects this sort of contractual obligation aspect that they see and how Christians relate to God and his church. So they would say it's more than just a casual agreement, but something that includes conscious, uh, self-sacrificing commitment. But even that idea is sort of a spectrum, right? Because Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists, who both would hold to an Orthodox Reformed tradition, um, use the phrase covenant renewal uh, in different ways, and both could use it to refer to their service. But they would have different ideas about who is actually participating in the covenant renewal or covenant confirmation and who it actually applies to. And other churches, a similar idea is there, but in a way that picks up on the Bible's use of covenant and covenant renewal and the framework of uh, Old Testament Israel rather than the framework of New Testament, um, New Covenant people of God. Like I said, we'll talk about that a little more uh, next week. For now, um, I want to look at the public reading of Scripture in Judaism. So we'll, we'll look at this. We'll, we'll sort of try and trace um, uh, some Scriptures and some texts that show us the public reading of Scripture, not just in the Old Testament, but also in um, the culture of Judaism. And I'm sort of trying to build this case to answer the question did Paul in 1 Timothy 4.13 just come up with the idea, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture? Or is he building on something that came before him? All right, so we want to do a little backtracking here. So that next section, the public reading in Judaism. Before I go there, any questions or thoughts? Yes, I'm here, baby girl. (laughs) She says daddy. (laughs) Okay, public reading in Judaism. Now, at the beginning of the class, I mentioned, again, 1 Timothy 4.13, where the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And I asked the question, did Paul just make this up, or did he get it from somewhere else? So um, we actually don't have a ton of information about public scripture reading um, in the Christian communities during the time of the apostles. But one scholar said that the close relationship between worship and the synagogue 
and the worship of early Christians, especially in the diaspora or the dispersion, clearly explains the reference to the practice in a Christian document in a way that implies that it was a standard feature of worship. In other words, regarding reading God's word publicly, what was happening in the synagogues seems to be a continuation of what had already been happening when the community of God's people were assembled. Acts 13.15 says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word or encouragement for the people, say it. During the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15.21, Paul and Barnabas say, For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city, sorry, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Now these verses assume the practice of reading the scriptures um, aloud in a synagogue setting. And what were they reading? The Old Testament scriptures. Even when you look at extra biblical writings coming out of Israel's Qumran community, you see that there was a standard practice of reading the scriptures and assemblies and explaining its meaning. I'll read one uh, section from uh, a writing out of the Qumran community. And in the place in which the ten assembled, there should not be missing a man to interpret the law day and night, always each man relieving his fellow. And the many shall be on watch together for a third of each night of the year in order to read the book explain the regulation, and bless together. Now, when we look at Judaism and synagogue worship, we see that the scripture readings were scheduled to include recitings even from the Shema, um, which is three Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21, and Numbers 15, 37 to 41. Uh, he also included the reading of the Torah, the law, and the reading of the prophets. Now, all of this was followed by some, um, something, or something like a priest uh, blessing the people. Now, the point here is not to say that the Reformed Church should replicate or look like a Jewish synagogue. Um, if that's the case, then there's a problem. That's not the point I'm, I'm trying to make here. Um, again, I'm trying to show that um, out of um, what, what Paul said, or Paul said what he said out of a context of reading the scripture or practice of reading the scriptures aloud uh, publicly. Um, so there was a, a biblical tradition there that he was, he was following in a Christian New Covenant context. Um, another interesting fact I learned in studying this topic Scripture readings in the synagogue could also be done by any member of the congregation, even by a minor, which is interesting. We don't plan to do that, just giving you some information. Um, there were exceptions to this openness, of course. Uh, if, priests, if priests or Levites were present, they took precedence in the reading. Um, in New Testament times, readings from the Torah 
were also joined by sections of readings from the prophets. And you see this happening in a synagogue in Luke 4, 16 to 20. Let me have someone go to Luke chapter 4 and read verses 16 down to 20 for us. Who wants to read that for us? evidence of this tradition of reading the scriptures publicly. Um, There's more evidence of this. Uh, uh, Philo, who was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher who lived during the time of Christ, one of his writings he said, and would you still sit down in your synagogue collecting your ordinary assemblies and reading your sacred volumes and security and explaining whatever is not quite clear? and devoting all your time and leisure with long discussions of the philosophy of your ancestors. So again, an extra biblical writing that shows uh, a practice within the community, the Jewish uh, and Christian community. Again, I'm trying to answer the question, did Paul in 1 Timothy 4.13 just make up the idea of reading the scriptures publicly or was it grounded in something that came before him? Now, remember, uh, Paul said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to what? He says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to what? Exhortation and teaching. Exhortation and teaching, right? So even this idea, this uh, idea of exhortation and teaching um, wasn't necessarily, or rather Scripture reading and explaining of the text wasn't necessarily new to the Christian community. In antiquity, reading from the Bible was followed by something like a sermon. The section of scripture that was read was explained for the purpose of practical application. And you see this in other um, uh, non-Christian contexts as well, which we'll talk about in a sec. Again, you see this happening in New Testament synagogues. Uh, Matthew 4, uh, Mark 1, Luke 4, Philo and the Qumran community. You see this uh, reading from the text. So I'm going to do this. I have three texts I want to sort of uh, dish out. One, to give me a break from talking, and two, to wake you up. So Matthew 4.23, who wants that? Sure. All right. Mark 1.21. All right. Harrison, and then Ben, you want Luke 4.15? Sure. Okay. First, Matthew 4.23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Thank you. Mark 121, yep. And they went into Capernaum, 
and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And he began teaching in the synagogues and was praised by all. Okay. Thank you. So these texts are connecting the um, reading with the teaching in the synagogues. Right? <clears throat> so this was, again, a common practice in, um, in the uh, Jewish and uh, Christian community. Now let's jump down to the next section here, the cultural context of the New Testament church practice. The cultural context. So again, and this is part one of two, two classes on the public reading of scripture. In this class, we're doing a, uh, a sort of biblical retracing to see what this looked like in Old Testament um, and, and Judaism and that community even in New Testament times. And next week, we'll talk about the theological implications and practice of it. Uh, so the cultural context of the New Testament church practice. One paper I read on this topic said that the complete consideration or a complete consideration of the backdrop of almost any New Testament church practice, especially in the case of uh, the Pauline churches, would have to include parallels in the Greco-Roman or ancient Greek and Roman environment. Why? Because this was the environment that passages like 1 Timothy 4.13 would have been written. So I'll do a little bit of that. The public reading of the text, or whatever text, again, isn't unique to Christianity or Judaism. Ancient Greeks and Romans did this too. Historically, the Jewish community had a strong tradition of education because they wanted to be sure that the Jewish men could read the scriptures in synagogue worship gatherings. But that wasn't always the case. The ancient Greek and Roman world is also um, usually described as a literate culture, but their literacy was probably low or limited as well. Now, all that to say, many documents in this period were written for oral delivery and oral reception by the audience. The cost of books and the limited availability of written texts meant that the continued practice of oral presentation for a community was necessary. So Christians or otherwise. And then on top of that, most people would have to rely on sort of a small group of literate people to read anything uh, at that time more than you know, a sign or a list, or a grocery list or something like that. So it was a, it was a different uh, cultural context. Um, um, at the same time, in pockets, there was an intense uh, training and education associated with the public reading of Gre in the Greco-Roman world. If a pupil or a student misread a syllable, this was interesting too. Um, so there were sort of training academies for reading um, publicly, um, orally, aloud before people. And in these sort of training academies, if a student uh, misread a syllable or stumbled in the reading, they would have dealt with um, an extreme embarrassment um, themselves and even within the community. It would have been embarrassment and shame. Um, I would have been kicked out of that school. <laughs> I stumbled reading scripture way more than I want to. Um, so training and reading became a fundamental element in the rhetorical education. Now because of this reciting of an official document, the student had to give critical 
commentary sort of on the text that was read. In other words, the success of the person reading determined or was determined by the exact accuracy and communication of the content. Now, reverence for the biblical text uh, in the case of ancient Jewish culture had the same level of concern with the Jewish context. Someone called to read in a Christian church, whether in Palestine or Jews living outside of Israel, would still be expected to conform to the highest standards of quality control. Now, just reading that, again, makes me nervous, thinking about the times I stumbled over uh, reading scripture. But it was also uh, convicting in that we have the word of God, we have the privilege of um, hearing the word of God preached, and when the word of God is read, um, it's a privilege as well, and it's something that we ought to take seriously. And as I was reading through it, it was, it was convicting for me as well, just you know, thinking about times or wanting to not be someone who casually handles the word of God. Um, and you see this, again, in this context, but it was very informative just from my own, my own thinking. Um, the word of God is preached. Um, it's, we, we try and pray according to the word of God. Um, the uh, elements or the, the Lord's Supper, baptism, these things are visible uh, pictures of the word, the gospel. Um, when the word of God is read, the public reading of scripture, all of these things are they're saying something about our triune God. And so we don't want to have a casual approach to it, neither the reading nor the hearing of it. All right, so uh, to bring this little section to a close, with the strong links of the New Testament church with the beliefs and practices of Judaism, it's not likely that the Pauline church, like the one we see in Ephesus that Timothy pastored, would have gotten its liturgical shape and customs from a pagan institution. But concerning the role of reading and reciting of central um, stories in these communities, there is a lot of parallels between those two contexts. Judaism, Christian church, and the Greco-Roman context. <clears throat> and at that point of, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little more next week as well, but that point of group identity concerning the covenant people of God is something that was important as well. So the public reading of God's word as a means of reminding the people of God of their place in God's redemptive story. This is what you see happening uh, in the Old Testament under a different covenant context, but it was a reminding of the people. This is who I am, God says. This is who you are. Uh, this is what you are called to. This is your, uh, the obligation that you have as my people. You see the same uh, principle in a new covenant context in the public reading of scripture. But we don't read as those with a veil over our eyes, blind to Christ, who is the source and substance of the Christian text. But we read and we listen by the Spirit, who has opened our eyes, gave us hearts of flesh, to read the word with eyes of faith and belief in Christ, the point and substance of the word. And we do that so that we worship God in spirit and truth uh, through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, the public reading of the Bible has been at the heart of worship, uh, the worship of God since the Old Testament times. And our services should be characterized by the reading of God's word. 
Terry Johnson, in his article he wrote, Reading the Bible and Corporate Worship, said this. In the reading of God's word, God speaks most directly to his people. And so this act of worship in which the verbal self-revelation of God is addressed unedited to the hearts of his gathered people or not or, or rather are not to be ignored, skipped or squeezed out. To have whole worship services in which the formal reading of God's word is absent is a self-imposed famine of the word. Very uh, insightful and convicted. Uh, just one more thought on this before closing um, the section. Our Baptist uh, Confession of Faith in 1689 says this in the chapter on religious worship and uh, the Sabbath day. The elements of religious worship of God include reading the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another, and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as well as the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They must be performed out of obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. In other words, the signers of the confession were saying that not reading the scriptures is on the same level as not having a sermon or not having congregational singing and worship. They didn't see those as separated. They weren't identical, but they weren't separated either. Now, it's hard to imagine not singing in corporate worship, not, whether it's modern hymns or contemporary hymns or psalms. But I hope that that same conviction and joy that you feel when you think about listening to the sermon or singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is the same joy and conviction when God's word is simply read during the service. Um, I'll close with that, and we'll talk more about scripture reading and corporate worship next week, uh, part two. But again, to just reemphasize it, what we're trying to do here throughout this, in this class and throughout these classes is look at uh, the biblical tradition in these different elements of worship. We also want to look at the Reformed community and history uh, concerning worship so that our minds are informed. Um, so that we can hopefully, through prayer and uh, having the, the data of Scripture inform our thinking, um, see our worship of God from our hearts and physically in our services more conformed. Right? So we're always trying to move uh, closer to um, Scripture's commands and principles concerning how we ought to worship. And that's what we're trying to do, again, throughout these classes. So I'll close with that. I think I may be a little early, but... Thoughts, uh, questions? Got a few minutes left.